You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. I'm Jonathan Tanner. It's fair to say that data has hardly been out of the news over the last few weeks, and the headlines have hardly been positive. Yet our previous episode on data was one of the most popular episodes of Government vs. the Robots that we've produced to date. So we've come along to the Data for Development Festival in Bristol to get some new perspectives on how data can deliver positive politics. We're going to be hearing from the Mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees, the Head of the Office of National Statistics, John Pullinger, taking a view from Columbia with Angelica Palmer, and last but not least, getting an intergalactic perspective on things with a representative from NASA. First up, let's get a local view from our host and Mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees. Uh, for people who haven't had the benefit of looking through your CV, can you tell our listeners what you did before you arrived here in the Mayor's office in Bristol? Uh, I, I suppose you could, you could call it varied or you could call it chaotic. I did a whole bunch of things. Um, I worked for a development agency called Tier Fund. I worked in the US with a guy called Jim Wallace coming out of the civil rights movement for a presidential advisor before returning to the UK where I was a BBC reporter for five years. Worked in public health, worked in the uh, voluntary community sector. I spent a lot of time at university. I did two masters. I did one on politics at Swansea, uh, one in economic development in Philadelphia, and I, I also am a Yale Award Fellow. I was out there in 2010. Wow, so plenty. Yeah. And um, many people say or think, I think, in politics that being mayor is one of the best jobs going. Um, from your experience so far, is that something you'd subscribe to? Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic role. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very unique. I hear that uh, Bloomberg has said there's, there's no kind of off-the-peg preparation for becoming a mayor, and he's absolutely right, there, there isn't. But I, I love the role. It's meaningful, um, and it's immediate. And by that, I mean, I look people in the eye. You know, the people I work with, I, I, will, I, I run to work this morning. I run past people I, I'm elected by. You know, I meet kids in school. Uh, and you can be doing that very personal interaction on one level, and then on Friday, we're going into a room to talk about, you know, £700 million worth of development, strategic development, and, and mass house building and transport. On the other hand, I can be in Brussels, as I was a few weeks ago, with the core cities meeting Michel Barnier and Guy Verhofstadt, talking about the future of uh, UK cities and their relationship with the, the EU. The variety is incredible, and, and it's fulfilling. That's probably a better description. And I guess one of the ways, one of the things that kind of seems a constant theme to your CV, whether that's the Tear Thunder or at the BBC or as mayor, is engaging with people and conversation and interaction. 
Have you seen over recent years the kind of role that technology plays in engaging people or in your work change at all? Uh, well, obviously it's there in a way that it wasn't in the past. I mean, when I was a reporter at um, Radio Bristol, there wasn't a mass political discussion, if you can call it that. I don't know if it's a discussion or just uh, people throwing slogans around. On Facebook, there wasn't a mass interaction through Twitter and and so forth. People got their information from papers, online newspapers were coming through, obviously, and then radio was a huge source of information. So the fact it's there is one thing. But I think I, I think there's a real blessing with it. Clearly, information is available, but there's also you've got to look at the dangers, and it's a point I've made. I, I've been making recently here that when a political movement or a political dialogue is is built around social media, it's vulnerable to the to the culture that comes through social media, which is one of which is, I think is non-listening, you know, absolutist, self-righteous, and aggressive. And that's really, that's very, very dangerous at the same time. I uh, had a look on your blog and I was struck by the House rules, which talk about having a, a, a I think it says the, that all contributions should be civil and tasteful. Yeah. Um, are those rules built around some of your thinking on how people should engage in civic conversations? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Your values are what you do. Everything else is just words, someone once said to me. And that's that's what I want to see. You know, I've said some of the say anti-capitalist activists. You know, they don't like capitalism because it's oppressive, rude, and treats people like commodities. And in their individual interactions, they're oppressive, rude, and treat people like political commodities. <laughs> I want consistency, and that's all. That's all I'm asking for: authenticity and activism, in the same way as we call for authenticity in politics. So um, yeah, these these are just the rules that people should have been brought up with. We're not asking for anything strange. Do you think it's easy to be authentic in politics? Um, well, I think so. I mean, I don't know. It is, but you, you may pay a heavy price for that, right? And I don't just mean from bad people, but I mean, there's a, there's a point in my thinking about politics that actually people spend a lot of time cracking on about politicians uh, debasing society. But let's be real about it. In some sense, we get the politics we deserve. Maybe, maybe the way politics is in some instances, I'm talking about the West here, not where you get a horrific dictator and so forth, but maybe in some sense our, our political culture is just a distilled reflection of what we are as a society. Uh, when I was in the US in 2010, there was a front cover of The, the Economist, and it, and it was called Angry America. And uh, it was talking about the level of rage there was around the Tea Party and how people hated all this rage in politics at the moment. And my point was, if it didn't sell, they wouldn't do it. <laughs> They're running focus groups of think tanks. They know aggression. They know the assertiveness. They know the othering of people. Settles. So we have to have a little bit of humility among the wider population as well. Um, politics absolutely has its job to do about being authentic. Uh, but then the electorate need to reward authentic politics. And we're here at the Data for Development Festival. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about why that's happening in Bristol? Well, we're, we're an international, if I can just sell my city a bit, we are an international city. And I think there's a perfect mix. Uh, when I looked around that hall and saw people from, you know, we've got 100 countries or so represented down the room, that is what Bristol is. City of 92 languages, over 150 countries of origin. I myself, as I, I shared in the hall yesterday, I'm the child of migrants. My dad came here as a 12-year-old from Jamaica. My mum came, my granddad came from South Wales and before that from Ireland. And I am the product of, you know, two continents, two races coming together in, in one person. And, and it's great to see that um, in the hall. So I think it is, it speaks in line with our, 
with our internationalism as a, as a population, but also it's a great city. It's a crossroads. It always has been. It's been a port, a train station, airport. We are a, we are a gateway to the UK and a, gate, and a gateway for the UK to the world. And how important is technology to Bristol's economy? Oh, massive. Technology is one of our flagship sectors and it's something we're known for. I mean, set the, the business incubator, uh, Set Squared, has been named uh, you know, the, the, the world's number one uh, university-supported uh, um, tech business incubating, um, tech startup incubator in the world. Um, we have a huge creative sector here. By 2025, you know, estimates are it'd be worth uh, you know, over a billion pounds. Uh, whether and that goes into digital, into TV production. Just last weekend, we were a test bed for 5G, the first in the, in the country to, to do so. We had all the 5G being rolled out here. So, yeah, it's a huge part of our economy. And, and what I would say is it fits in line with the character of the city as well, which has always been one about innovation and invention. From Brunel and the suspension bridge, which you can have a chance to see, to the, uh, the SS Great Britain, this being on the forefront of the world's latest technology is, is what Bristol's about. And what do you think is most exciting about the technology that you see Bristol engaging with? I say there's two things about it, right? One is what excites me about the way Bristol's approaching it is that there's always a danger that when new technology comes in, it creates social divides. There's always a danger that you end up with this, telling this fantastic story about the latest stuff in the world, and yet millions of people are not a part of it. In Bristol, you'd say tens of thousands of people are not a part of it. But what there is in Bristol, in line with that culture of activism, which I actually support as well as challenge, is an absolute commitment to inclusive economic development. So what we're doing around technology is characterised by our desire to build an inclusive economy, inclusive politics and inclusive society. I think that's really, uh, really exciting. And if you don't do that intentionally, you end up fragmenting society with, a, with something you feel is, is exciting. But there are very real um, applications that are going on as well. The challenge I've made uh, to a number of the leaders in areas, it's got to land. It can't be a group of PhDs running off and having a, having a play and having a good time. It needs to land in adult social care, and that's what we're trying to do in Bristol. It needs to land in how people get move around the city, and it is. It needs to land in our education system, and that's what they're driving into. And I find that really, uh, really exciting. And presumably technology isn't much of a doorstep issue when you're out talking to residents. No. Yeah, we, we've got 25% of our kids in the city in poverty, uh, one in adults in fuel poverty. Um, again, tech can come in there. It's about managing, you know, uh, managing energy supply and making people more aware. Uh, if I can't say, national policy is not helping us right now. Um, so uh, the immediate challenges for people are um, are those everyday needs. Am I going to pay my bills? Am I going to eat? Am I going to get my kids into a good school? Are they going to have a future? Uh, what we need to do is make sure that the, the tech development in uh, the tech offer is one is providing jobs to everyone, not just an elite few, but also making real real change in the lives of uh, real people. So we're talking at a time when tech companies are all over the headlines um, for growing inequality, uh, carrying out activities that people weren't fully aware of. What would you, in thinking about trying to build an inclusive society and getting technology companies to play a role in that, what would your message be to technology companies who look at Bristol as a real opportunity of somewhere to base themselves, but think, okay, well, the mayor's big on inclusivity. What, what do you want to see from companies who are engaging with Bristol? I want to see an openness to that agenda. Channel 4 are looking to relocate from London, as you'll know, and obviously we're a city that believes we can, we can offer something special in that. Um, that relationship if they feel the same we'd be really keen to um, explore that but one of the things we said to the the tv companies started to really pick up this challenge about being more diverse right 
it's great. It's pr- you know, in television production, the creative sector, they're generally politically progressive, you know, anti-racist and all that, but they don't employ black people. <laughs> and they don't employ poor people, poor white working class people on the whole. And I, we, so they want to take this challenge on, which we welcome. But my point to them was, your TV companies, you don't know how to do recruitment of inclusion. But we do. There are plenty of people in the city that do. Right? Be it local government, be it many people in the voluntary community sector, someone who just left my office who runs a citywide mentoring program for 200 young people from disadvantaged backgrounds, of all racial backgrounds. So they don't have to come up with all the solutions to that. Just come and have a chat with us, share your intention, and we'll step up and support you to do that. And that's all we look for, that, that openness and that willingness to partner with us. And you mentioned how sometimes national policy can sometimes uh, work against what you're trying to achieve. If we uh, gave you gave you some national power, what, what might be the first thing that you would change, or what would you most want to see change from the current government to help support a city like Bristol? More local power. We need more uh, financial independence, and I don't mean the fragmenting. I just mean more um, influence over over our, our local finances. Where you know the UK is one of the most centralised countries um, in Europe, and it's almost as though at the city level we're often waited with, waiting with bated breath. I'm waiting right now to find out if we're going to get money for housing in a new train station. We're waiting with bated breath. Now, you can't work like that. You know, businesses want certainty so they can plan ahead. We want certainty so we can plan ahead as a place, looking out for the interests of our businesses, our health, our, our voluntary community sector as well. The other thing I would just add into that as well is, you know, tech is absolutely fantastic, right? But we've got to realise it's not the answer to everything. There was a, I was in, um, in MIPIM uh, just last week and someone was talking about all this incredible tech in the city, how it's going to make life easier. And I said, but you've got to remember that making life easier is not the aim of life. If it was, people wouldn't go and climb mountains. Right? There, there is an element which clearly we want to make life convenient, but let's not think that this is the golden pill that is going to solve our angst with, with what it means to be alive and what it means to flourish as a human being. It's part of a range of approaches. Human relationships, a bit of grit in the ointment, all these things are actually necessary um, to make a, a, a flourishing, healthy, thriving society. So that's the view from here in Bristol. But over the way in Newport is the Office of National Statistics. That's headed by John Pullinger. I sat down with John to find out his view on how statistics can continue to deliver public policy improvements here in the UK. Can you tell me a bit about the remit of the Office of National Statistics? Well, I always like to tell the story of why we came into being in the first place. My office was set up by Winston Churchill in 1941, um, and he said that utmost confusion is caused when people argue on different numbers. I want someone who can bring together the evidence so that we can be talking about um, the issues rather than the numbers, numbers that can be accepted and used without question. And you a resource for people across government to come to for, for facts and figures? Absolutely. I mean, my, the legislation that governs my position just says I've got to produce statistics for the public good. So I'm here for the government, I'm here for business, I'm here for the public. And what sort of services does the Office of National Statistics provide to the rest of government? Do you do bespoke number crunching? Do you produce large data sets that are publicly available? What's the, the kind of range of the work? Well, the range is enormous. I mean, if you look in the papers every day, there will be a dozen, more than a dozen stories that are coming out of ONS. Just be looking a week at a time. One week you might have um, inflation one day, you'll have jobs the next day, you'll have shopping habits the day after that, you have government debt the day after that, you might have immigration. Every single day we are providing the numbers that are fueling the public debate. Do you have a, uh, a favourite moment in the calendar of the kind of the, one of the numbers that rolls around every year that you pay particular attention to? I wouldn't say every year because the, the pace is, is more than that. But I, I think uh, it depends on the political rhythm. 
So at the moment, people are very interested in the Brexit effect and whether the devaluation after Brexit is feeding through. Um, so just watching how that's happening. Uh, so in inflation at the moment, that's a very interesting story. And inflation's down because of fuel prices, I think, was the story I saw yesterday. Yes, it's a combination of fuel prices being down a bit, but also that food prices are very high last year because of a whole load of things happening in the Mediterranean. OK. Um, we're here at the Data for Development Festival, and obviously there's a lot of people talking about data. But I, I, I would hazard more people talking about data now than maybe 20, 30 years ago. What's changed in terms of the data that's available to ONS? Well, I mean... We talk very straightforwardly about a data revolution, but it is, a, it is a revolution. I mean, it is a resource that was not there before. So most of ONS's um, data traditionally has been surveys or the 10-yearly census. Um, we've had to do a lot of work to get hold of data, but now data is everywhere. So there's a lot of data in government administrative systems. There's a lot of data in um, private sector organisations. If we can really be respectful about the kind of privacy questions and um, make sure that we're not using data in ways that people don't trust or don't like, then there's an amazing resource there for creating answers to the questions the public care about. And what sort of things are answerable now that perhaps weren't in a kind of generation ago, or even, even five years ago? Well, at a general level, what we can do is we can be much quicker. I mean, a lot of statistics previously have taken months, even years, to get organised. We can often do these really, really fast now. You can be much more fine-grained, so you can look at individual parts of the country or individual sectors in ways that were difficult before. But most important of all, you can do things that are really relevant on a question someone's worried about. So issues like loneliness, for example. Uh, We're worrying what is happening to people, particularly older people. How are they connected to society? If you start from the question in a very open-minded way you get your data, you can come up with some very creative solutions now. And where are some of the interesting or creative places that people can, can access data? Well, I mean, I'm very uh, interested in what the environmental movement has done with crowdsource data, for example, trying to look at bird populations or ecosystems. So um, the public are now much more involved in collecting data, which is great. I think you can look at data sources such as things coming out of Oyster Card database in London or mobile phone type data to look at people's movements. And again, you're not interested in individuals here, you're looking at the the patterns that emerge. And those patterns help you make transport systems better. They help you work out where to put schools and hospitals. They're really powerful things. And these new data sources help us do it in a much more uh, effective way. And can you give me and, and listeners an example of a time where data produced or collected by ONS has informed policy making that's gone on to kind of make a difference in the country? So kind of the, the perfect partnership between uh, ONS and another government department that informs how things are done? Well, it happens all the time. I mean, you, you see the most recent budget statement from the Chancellor. I mean, that is significantly guided by the assessment we are currently making of the state of the economy, the state of the public finances, the state of the labour market. So all of those numbers are feeding into the assessment that the Chancellor's making, the Bank of England's making, when they're making those kind of macro choices. They're also feeding in at local level, so um, understanding our population change is driving housing demand in cities like Bristol where we are today. So all of our data is about helping Britain make better decisions whether at the macro level or increasing at the micro level too. And do you have a challenge of kind of making aware your services across Whitehall? Do some departments engage more, some engage less? I guess that's the life of kind of working within the government. Well, maybe, but I think our bigger problem is just the demand is so high. 
I, especially in the kind of policy space around Brexit, people are wanting a lot more detail on immigration, who's coming to the country, on trade, what kind of markets are potentially available for us to exploit, um, which countries, which products. Our main issue is not trying to find people who are interested, but trying to kind of manage that demand so we can um, give people what they want as effectively as possible. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And thinking about some of the, the data that's now available to access, what should we be aspiring to in terms of public policy to put that data to use? So perhaps things that it kind of feels like we're on the cusp of being able to have an answer to something we haven't been able to answer for a while. If we fast forward five years, what would you like to think we're doing with data that we're perhaps not doing now or, or perhaps doing in a more sophisticated way? Well, I think we're increasingly becoming a kind of broker in the system, so we're not necessarily the sole collector, we're definitely not the sole collector anymore, so we're trying to build an ecosystem of sources of data that can be brought together pretty quickly when you've got a public policy question, so we need to build partnerships, and that's what this conference is really about. So that's the supply side of the equation, but the demand side, I think, is a very interesting one. As a country, I think we could do a lot more to be data literate and to be aware of just what data can do with us, and not be so frightened of numbers. I mean, we do have still this issue of, um, oh, I don't like statistics or I could never do it at school. But actually, this is a data world and data literacy in tomorrow's world is as important as reading and writing literacy was 100 years ago. And I think that's a key part of our investment in our education system, in our universities, but also in our businesses and our governments. And so what degree is data literacy about numeracy and and, and kind of numerical ability? That's part of it. But I think an increasing part is just to be a bit sceptical. Where's this data come from? Can this really be right? Is this a big number? And you've got a lot of people using numbers to promote a vested interest or as part of some kind of propaganda drive in in some way. And um, So data literacy is not just about being confident with numbers. Sort of being a bit sceptical too, saying, so what's really going on here? And being able to give yourself that kind of power to decide what these people are trying to tell me, why they're trying to tell me to it, and do I like it? And in your experience, are there other countries or, or even local authorities that are doing innovative things that, that others can learn from? 
I think there's some cool stuff happening locally. Bristol is a really good example in the UK. I think in some countries and cities who are starting from scratch, they describe themselves as leapfrogging us. So Colombia would be a country that I would name. They're coming out of a really dark time in their country's history. And they're seeing data as a means of helping them make good choices. Ghana will be another one. We've had a very powerful speech from the Vice President of Ghana here this morning. And they are seeing data as a kind of key driver of their ability to improve their economy and improve the social condition of all the people. And obviously, uh, with recent news headlines, which I won't go into at the moment, but people are kind of perhaps waking up to the way that their data is used and collected. So for informed citizens who are trying to create positive change in society, mm. does the ONS offer data sets that citizens can engage with? And what would, you, what would your advice be to citizens who are looking to use government data for, for social good? Well, I mean, we are an open data shop. Everything that we have got, um, except if it's confidential, is available to people. I mean, we, we published over 5 billion cells of data from the last census, for example. I mean, these are very large sources. Um, we aim to make them as accessible as possible. Obviously, the very big ones are, are quite tricky. But the basics, so we talked about inflation earlier. You can go onto our website, type in prices, and you'll find a whole load of stuff about prices, petrol prices, food prices, whatever you want. As I said earlier, we're trying increasingly to get that granularity into that so you can see yourselves in it. We're also trying to produce a few things that are just a little bit more engaging. So we've done a crime calculator, for example, so you can look at um, your own area and what the risks of um, being a victim of a crime in your area are. So just thinking about how we present things in a, in a way that is accessible to people who aren't necessarily as familiar with the technicalities. And in a career working with statistics, do you have, have you amassed some favourite statistics over the years? There's one that really struck me because that really taught me the power of telling stories and making connections with people. I was asked what the most interesting thing to come out from the census was. And the most interesting thing to me from the census was the million people whose primary job was caring for a sick or housebound relative. Now, that information had not been known before. So this is an example of making an invisible problem When you looked at who those million people were, a lot of them were in former coal mining towns. So there were particularly women, um, but also children, family members, looking after the coal miners who'd kind of disappeared from view after the mines went. They're still out there, and someone's looking after them. Now, the data really shone a light on that question. Um, and shone a light more generally on the issue of social care in the country. And that's a really dominant policy question we've got to tackle. And do you see uh, any traits in people who are successfully applying data to policy at the moment? Are there any characteristics that you think the best kind of users of data all share? I think that partly it's a scientific curiosity, but I think most importantly it's a realisation that if you're in politics or you're a decision maker in business you will do something better for your constituents or your shareholders if you know the data and make the choices that will get you most accurately to the place you want to go. Oratory and um, ideology take you a long way. That's what a lot of people get into, into politics or business for. But the smart ones know they'll achieve their vision much more effectively if they know the data and use the data in a way that is creative and focused on improving the lot of the people or of the profitability of the business. 
Many of the conversations we have here on Government versus the Robots are specific to the UK, the US or perhaps Europe. But the question of how technology will affect politics in the future isn't just a Western one. I asked Angelica Palmer from the Government of Colombia for her view on how data might transform public policy there. Uh, so I am Angelica Palma. I'm the head of the International Relations and Technical Cooperation Unit at the Colombian National Statistics Office, Danny. One of the things we do on Government versus the Robots is look at how technology will affect politics in the future. Is the relationship between technology and politics something that's being talked about a lot in Colombia? Yes, it is. And basically because usually we see the improvements in technology or ICT, for example, coming from the private sector. But the government of Colombia has done a very strong commitment for starting to use it in the public sector for public good. Um, so, of course, there are some general initiatives and DANE itself has committed very much to incorporate technology, to modernize and to innovate into all our internal processes. So what's the function of uh, your department? So basically, we have two roles. First, we are the most important information producer agency in the government, in the country. But also, we coordinate the national statistical system, which is a system of more than 500 members, which is responsible for producing and disseminating all relevant information for the country from an official perspective. And that is, um, well, it's a, it's a very big system, basically having government agencies, private sector, academia, and local government agencies too. And what sort of information do you collect? So, well, regarding DANI, we have uh, mainly surveys. We also do censuses. And uh, more recently, we have turned to using administrative data for statistical production, which is uh, a very efficient way of using information that is already there for statistical um, information production. Uh, and also we are turning into big data, uh, use of spatial, geospatial information, of uh, web scrapping, of everything that is out there. Like we are in an area in which there is so much information out there. And basically the challenge of statistical offices is, tr is try to revise how can do better in order to make the most of all the information that is available. And what's available now that wasn't available four or five years ago? There is an issue of being available, besides, of course, the importance of internet and everyone having access to it. So there is so much information that you can gather from apps that wasn't there before. Uh, the ability of getting to scratch internet, because that's basically what we do, in order to gather information that before you wouldn't thought it was information useful for statistical measures. And I would turn also to geospatial information. I mean, they have always been there, but we have never thought of producing statistics with them. And how can the information that we get from geospatial information make a difference to people's lives? So basically what we have tried to do in Dani is to to you know like to have access to this information and take it to the most granular level. So for example, we have done a tremendous effort for measuring SDGs, uh, SDG indicators, which are thought as for helping people at a very narrow level and we have had already made like some improvements in having measures of how uh, urban land is being consumed at the very local level so we have uh, metrics so far for a hundred and 30-something cities in the country. And of course, that because of the level of detail, 
um, cities, local governments are able to make decisions based on that information. That, of course, is, is very important. And are there any policies which you feel you've been able to shape using statistics that are kind of rolling out now? Uh, yes. I mean, Dania's role is not to get into policy making. We only produce the information. But what we have done, and I think that has a major policy impact, is to make agencies aware of the importance of information. And that, of course, demands an internal process within all these agencies to reshape the way they do policy. So, for example, um, on gender, we have worked for several years in order to evaluate the way information is being produced and among the statistical system members uh, we have created the awareness of them to review their internal processes and, and see whether their programs or projects deserve or are relevant for incorporating a gender specific perspective. That of course has an impact in policy which is immediate. But also, and I would like to call attention to that, we have worked with several government agencies and private sector too in order to create an information system for gender violence. That is something that never happened before. It wasn't out there. There is a very institutional effort to put everything together in order to make visible a reality that is important for half the population of the country, if not all of them. And what might be possible in five years' time that isn't possible now? Well, we don't know. Like, things have changed so rapidly. In less than four years, we were able to put out the possibility for everyone in the country to do the census on themselves. That's something that we haven't thought before, that we never thought that it was possible. And then all of a sudden, after, of course, they are like four years' work, it's out there. So I cannot say we're going to be next. And what technology, other than data gathering technology, is potentially exciting for a country like Colombia? For us, there are two ways in which we see the implementation of technology. So first, of course, is the way we gather information, as you just mentioned, but also how do we make the most of technology in order to get to citizens. So at the very end, it's also about communication. The statistical process doesn't end with the metric, but how do we get people to use it? So we have a very strong commitment also to open data, to be sure that, that the information we produce is not only for usually the government or public agencies, but also the private sector, the academia, the researchers. But at the very end is the citizen who should get the information and be able to make decisions with it. So first, you need to open data in a format in which they can use it, but also you have the responsibility of getting there, like creating the capacity for people to understand data and make decisions based on that. So that uh, we are using, for example, this, this electronic census tool in order for people to somehow get closer to statistics, to generate this statistical literacy so they know that they are counted, they know that they need to you know, engage more in this process in order for them to eventually be able to use it. And just lastly, having worked with lots and lots of statistics, just to ask, do you have a favourite statistic? <laughs> I have a bias because uh, before doing international cooperation, I was in the agricultural and rural team. So I have bias for that also because I'm very much convinced of the importance of uh, welfare in rural areas, which is usually not a priority, but also 
because eventually all humans need to eat. And I think that uh, it's very important first to make visible what's going on there, but also how can we make the most of the information we have in order to improve the conditions of the people who are living in rural areas. And just lastly, what's the thing that for people who haven't visited Colombia you feel is often most misunderstood that you would like everybody to understand? Well, I think like a good um, way of approaching that is to understand how big it is. When we think of it, at least for Colombians, usually we just think of maybe like 2% of the territory, so because that's what we know. But once you look at it, and I think that's why it's fascinating about like all this geospatial information availability, is that you get to know that it is so diverse, it's so big, it's so different, it's so, like, there are so spaces which are, or locations that are so hard to reach, but also so fascinating because they own biodiversity and richness that at the very end, of course, you get in love with the country because it's just spectacular, but also you understand how how challenging it is to produce information for such a big and diverse country. And finally, we promised you an intergalactic view on government versus the robots. And so that's why I sat down with RG Cavado from NASA to get a couple of thoughts from her about how satellites are being used to inform policymaking back here on Earth. And what do you find most exciting about space? Well, everything is exciting about space. <laughs> I think um, there is a, a great advantage in using the vantage point of space and satellites to look at our planet and better understand Earth and based on observations from satellites as an integrated system. From forecasting weather to monitoring natural disasters and looking at health of ecosystems, communities and citizens, EO data helps inform, locate and provide context for research and policy making, including achieving sustainable societies. And working somewhere like NASA, do you feel like you're kind of at the forefront of technology? Certainly. So the work that I do really looks at uh, focusing on on, uh, translating science into applications for societal benefit and in particular looking at Earth observation applications for in support of uh, global policy frameworks such as the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development as well as other agendas and frameworks like disasters or looking at climate change and the Paris Climate Agreement. And from what I can see from my reading, it looks like we use satellites to find out what's happening back here down on Earth. So we're using space to monitor the Earth, is that right? That's right. So certainly, so Earth observation has a, have a clear role in assessing the environment so, that is so crucial to biodiversity and life itself. And so we are using satellites to help monitor and track changes that occur in uh, water-related ecosystems, looking at aspects of land cover, air quality, and other parameters that are very important in understanding, again, and making informed decisions in in terms of resources management and uh, aiding sustainable development planning. So we're using satellites for things like monitoring climate impacts or uh, response to conflict and maybe even migration flows. What are we doing now that we couldn't do maybe 10 years ago? Because satellites have been around for quite a long time. Certainly. So um, with uh, satellite data, almost 100% of the Earth's surface is, is covered repeatedly. And so this is far greater than what could have ever been achieved just with uh, field-based or airborne technologies. 
that coupled with innovations in technology and also looking at data analytics and, and other such um, data architectures enables users to be able to have access to all this plethora of information, but also integrated with other data sources. So looking at national statistics or sources that relate to um, crowdsource data like citizen science and combining all that to better understand and monitor changes, look at trends, and also better integrate that information. And what do you think is the most exciting change the capabilities we have in space could deliver here on Earth? So we can, we can really look at Earth, our planet, as an integrated system and be able to have a routine and customary consistent uh, monitoring of changes on the planet to be able to better understand how it changes, both due to natural variability causes, but also to human influence. And so this is really uh, fundamental. If you were in a position where you were advising governments how to make the most of the data that's available to them, mm-hmm. what advice might you give? So I think it's it's very important to uh, for the governments to uh, focus on enabling collaboration, cross-sectoral collaboration, to be able to make the most, take the most advantage of uh, expertise uh, that exists in different uh, domains and sectors. So, having uh, civil society, academia, private sector working with uh, government entities and focusing on how such other uh, uh, data sources, such as earth observations and, and geospatial data, can be applied to help inform decision making is key. That's it for this special episode of Government vs. the Robots. Next time we'll be back in the studio talking to Bess Mayhew, Chief Executive of the organisation More United. As ever, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to the podcast, share it, tell your friends about it, and follow us on Twitter at Government vs. the Robots. That's at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore robots. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.